We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we're doing our book review of Evolution's Achilles Heels. And I think we're going to wrap up chapter two today. Is that correct, Bob? Hopefully. You know, I always have high hopes of how far we can get, but then uh, the subjects are so interesting that we often take more time than I thought it was going to take us, but it's fruitful time. So I'm thinking we can finish the second chapter of this book, which is on genetics. So Hampton, buckle up. This is going to be a great ride. All right. Okay. So you remember back with uh, when we covered Darwin's Black Box with Michael Behe. And part of the point of that was, you know, when this theory was proposed, the theory of evolution, primarily popularized by Darwin, though other people had been thinking along those same lines, they, they didn't have the data we have today. And so the metaphor for that is a black box. So you could easily make assumptions just to get around major obstacles. But now that the black box is opened, that is that we can see inside the cell through electron microscopy, <laughs> there's no chance of, of the, this actually happening. So genetic, the study of genetics is the same thing. It used to be uh, the general assumption in genetics was a gene coded for a specific protein, which really functions as an enzyme to catalyze reactions and so on. It's, it's how you build your body, the proteins. So, you know, one gene, one protein. Well, that's similar to Darwin's black box. Now that we understand better, though we're nowhere near fully understanding, but once we understand better uh, the human genome, how the genes function to a large extent, it's not even close. That model's nowhere near accurate that one gene corresponds to the production of one protein. It's much more complex than that. Remember last time emphasizing the fact that like the, the most sophisticated human computer code is 2D. Our genes are very similar to computer codes, but it's 4D. Right. <laughs> right. So it, we mentioned this last time, but boy, does it scare me with the, that mRNA vaccine. If that's anything like what they're be 
telling us that it is, it, it's they're operating on that old principle, right? One gene controls one protein. Well, it's 4D. It's not 2D. So if they mess with one thing thinking they're only affecting one thing. Yes, there's going to be major unintended consequences. Major. But our subject today is is concerning evolution. So I thought we'd do this, Hampton. I want I wanted to reemphasize by reading some of the text. The, the author of chapter two is uh, Carter, is the guy's last name, right? Let me find the page. Robert, Dr. Robert Carter. He's in uh, at the University of Miami in the USA. And I wonder if just that fact uh, interests people, that there are many more than you might suspect people with uh, terminal degrees in biology who don't believe evolution <laughs> yeah right and they, they don't believe it because um obviously you can be you should be super motivated by your worldview i mean if you're christian you should not believe evolution um but these guys are coming from the point of science is why they don't believe it, it it's not science I know that sounds strange to people that are hearing this for the first time. Evolution, once again, is a theory of origins, and it's a horribly lacking theory. There is no data. Remember going through Behe and some other books earlier, you'll find the same thing in, in this book. At critical junctions, the theory of evolution is silent. They have no answers for the real critical questions because it didn't happen. That's why. Mm -hmm. But here we're, we're reading Robert Carter. And I wanted to read this section that emphasizes the complexity of what we're dealing with. <clears throat> There's a considerable amount of data compression in the genomes of all higher organisms. Any given section of each of these genomes might be doing several things simultaneously. A single letter of DNA might be part of an exon that is in turn used in 20 different proteins. At the same time, that letter might be part of the splicing code that tells the cell when to produce each of those proteins. That letter also might be part of the histone code that the cell uses to know where to wrap the DNA around certain protective proteins called histones. That letter also might affect the 3D structure of the DNA. It might be part of the pervasive epigenetic code, and it might be part of the three-letter codon that's translated into a specific amino acid. Because the genome is base four, and because of codon degeneracy, the designer, and that's capital D, was able to select from alternate codons when faced with fulfilling multiple simultaneous requirements. Degeneracy allowed him to overlap multiple genomic commands without having to compromise the design requirements of proteins. So <clears throat> that's the heavy sledding. That's the detail on what we were saying earlier with this mRNA. You switch out one section of a gene, you're affecting multiple things. 
not just one thing. You're, you're not just creating a protein in the body. You're doing lots of different stuff. <clears throat> so last paragraph in this section, multiple overlapping DNA and RNA codes defy naturalistic explanation and make it impossible for natural selection to operate as an agent of long-term evolutionary change. Was that sentence clear enough? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Selection run in, runs into a wall of insurmountable difficulty when faced with mutations that affect more than one trait simultaneously. In other words, how, how could you select for blue eyes, for instance, if that blue eye gene was affecting lots of other things? See, it, it makes the choice um, impracticable. Right. You can't, you can't really select for one trait. So polyfunctionality means that a given mutation can affect completely unrelated traits, say color vision, the ability to tolerate garlic and the mitochondrial efficiency, although this would be an extreme example. But like all of those things might be affected by that one codon. Mm-hmm. There is still yet, this is still yet another Achilles heel for evolutionary genetics. How could a simple process of trial and error, always seeking the simplest answer to an environmental problem, create an interleaved and multi-layered system of regulation? I In fact, I think that's yeah. a key sentence. Yeah. So let me read it one more time. <clears throat> How could a simple process of trial and error, always seeking the simplest answer to an environmental problem, create an interleaved and multi-layered system of regulation. Okay, so the, let me clarify that a little bit. What, what we're talking about here in the midst of this section on genetics is not just the environment selecting for a stronger individual, a taller individual, or different eye color, different beaks in a finch. What we're talking about is how did the environment select for this information system called a genome? How did we get that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? right. So he finishes up the paragraph this way. In fact, this system is one of the wonders of the universe. Without this level of multitasking, the genome would have to be much larger and it might not be possible for DNA-based multicellular organisms to exist at all without it. So we've said this many times in this current topic, evolution did not happen and could not have happened. So, and yet, you know, stepping outside the text just for a second, because we're about to launch into an interesting section, stepping outside the text just for a second. And yet, Hampton, I would say it's probably the dominant worldview of most people in the West. Yeah, definitely. And, it, and it's completely wrong. Well, wh what kind of errors is that going to lead you to in your life? Right. Oh, goodness. Well, we were cleaning out the other day. Lori found an old biology textbook from one of the kids from college, I think. So she 
tossed it by the you know trash can i was like oh since we're doing this i opened it up and sure and uh on page zero <laughs> second first sentence of the second paragraph it it basically says that evolution is the foundational principle of biology yeah and in every single section of that um they just just hammered that home mm-hmm. and you notice all of these the varied you know things in nature and the amazing you know amazing things in nature well that's evidence of evolution <laughs> you know and i'm going no it's not it's evolution of it's a evidence of a creator a designer you know right it's right it's real interesting to see see that book yeah yep um boy that leads me to a bunch of stories but i'd rather carry on with where we were headed this morning you can't rabbit trail me that easy hampton okay (laughs) okay so let me ask you a question to introduce our next section considering biblical history are what three parts of the major unfolding of biblical history might be important for the study of human genetics down through history? Well, creation. Okay. Adam and Eve. Yeah. And then uh, a bottleneck or whatever of the flood where we just get down to eight people. Okay. And then Tower of Babel where they all spread out because they can't talk to each other. That's exactly what I would say. So the question on the table then becomes, is there genetic evidence for those three events in the history of the human genome? What do you think? I think there should be. There is. (laughs) Okay. What did you have highlighted from this section? Because let me refer our readers to this. This one's a hard one to summarize the next, you know, six, seven pages Uh, maybe eight or nine pages, but get the book, get Evolution's Achilles Heels, edited by Robert Carter. And you'll, uh, you'll be amazed at how closely the genetic data that we can ascertain today fits the biblical model. Yeah. So what did you have highlighted? He had a paragraph said, because Genesis claims to be a history book, and because it claims an all-encompassing history of humanity, it makes certain and specific predictions about human genetics. These predictions deal with the creation of two original people, Adam and Eve, a population bottleneck that occurred about 1,600 years later in the time of Noah, when the world population was reduced to eight souls, and the predicted single dispersal of humanity from a central point in the Middle East a few hundred years later. We must use caution when pro- approaching this subject, for human science has, a, has had a pretty bad track record of getting things <laughs> right through the centuries. There is much we could be wrong about today. Is it, so let me bounce off that just for a second. Those last couple sentences are so important. Because we often hear, even even in political context, right? You need to trust the science. Really? (laughs) 
what science? Didn't we say in our core principles, there's good science and there's bad science. Science is done by human beings. Human beings have a world view. I'm not trusting anything that has to do with evolution because I know it's wrong. It's wrong scientifically. It's wrong biblically. So when people say, you know, they sort of use it as a club in their argument, you need to go with the science. Well, it's not nearly that simple. I will happily go with good science, mm-hmm. right? But I'll reject bad science. So right. he he's just making the point there. Science doesn't really have a very good track record. <laughs> well, he points out in here that all the stuff in our DNA, all the variations could easily fit in the DNA or genome of a single female and account for all the variations that we see. Yeah, that's right. What else did you have highlighted in that section? Well, he pointed out that, you know, the Bible does not say that God created two of every kind of animal. You know, we think about the flood, we ended up with just two of each kind um, yeah. Genus, yeah, not species, I guess. And um, so, you know, that there was a whole functional worldwide ecology, at least around the area of Garden of Eden. So I thought that was, I hadn't really thought through that. It's an interesting point. I think we sort of assume it was just a couple, right? A, a male and a female of every animal, but that's just an assumption. Well, he I never mean, says you think that. about just the fact that you need to, a bunch of bees to pollinate a bunch of flowers. So you wouldn't start off with two bees. Correct. They, they'd be really, they'd be busy bees if they were trying to populate and pollinate all the, uh, the flowers. Correct. And I think, I think he says that, or we assume that as Christians because of the model of Adam and Eve. And then you'll see, you know, when Noah, for instance, <coughs> excuse me, was loading the Arc, right they came two by two but the the clean animals right seven by seven um but that's even if you got it down to two at that point those two animals you know a male and a female lion for instance would have within their genome all of the genetics up to that point right right so he makes some good points about that in there. I've got another paragraph highlighted in here that was very interesting to me, if we could. You know, one of the ways they begin to piece together uh, the human genome <coughs> down through history is mitochondrial DNA is an interesting subset of the subject of DNA because that's usually carried i'm not sure this is a hundred percent but they're they're close to saying we're a hundred percent certain on this that's carried through the mother that that's not carried through the father so that helps trace some genetic markers down through history so let me just read this paragraph about that because it's interesting this is on page 68 hampton the first full paragraph the date of mitochondrial Eve. So what he's referring to there is the earliest human mitochondrial DNA from a single source. Well, can we back up one sentence? Sure. 
if there were any other females alive millions of years ago, only one managed to pass her genome to all people living today. Okay, so thank you for pointing <laughs> that. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. So uh, imagine the significance of that. Geneticists who are studying the history of the human genome know that at one point, and I would say that point is the beginning, <laughs> right. right? That's Adam. But at one point, all mitochondrial DNA came through one female. And that, that sure sounds a lot like Genesis 1 to me. Yeah, and then, then your paragraph you were going to read. Okay. The date of mitochondrial Eve is assumed to be in the hundreds of thousands of years before the present, but only if one assumes a certain slow mutation rate and common ancestry with chimps using real-world mutation rates gives an age for Eve about, let me pause, I want people to think this through when they're listening, gives a real date of about 6,000 years ago. Hmm. A more recent study demonstrated that mutations in the mitochondrial control reach occur at a rate of one every other generation. Since Eve's mitochondrial sequence has been reconstructed and published in the evolutionary literature, and since most mitochondrial lines are less than 30 mutations removed from the Eve consensus sequence, and since the most divergent are only 100 mutations removed, the diversity of mitochondrial DNA within the modern human population can easily fit into a 6,000 year, 200 generation time frame. Is that staggering? Yeah, that uh, seems to be pretty good proof. That's hardcore proof. And that's why, let me just point this out. So this chapter is on genetics. It's chapter two of the book, Evolution's Achilles Heels. The author of this chapter is the editor of the whole book. So genetic, the study of genetics is the spear point into the subject of evolution. And you've heard him say a number of times, last week we covered this, we've already covered it this week, impossible. Yeah, I was at the uh, Evangelical Theological Society meeting several years back and I mentioned this earlier um, but that was what the guy was actually saying is that all of these humans evolved and then God just chose one yeah, pair. Completely, completely wrong and this guy was you know at the evangelical theological society and yep. a professor at some I think Catholic university yep. or something up in Canada I yep. Come on, Walton, but I may be wrong. Could be, could have been Walton. He he says stuff like that. I've heard him say stuff like that before. He's a top notch scholar, but but he bought into evolution. Correct. And why is that? Let's rabbit trail that for sixty seconds. I, why? I think it's, why is that? I think it's because 
they want to be respected. Okay. In the scientific community. Okay, I agree. Here, here's I, I would take it a level deeper, but I, I agree with that. Well, let's go deeper. Oh, okay. Then <laughs> this is just my opinion, Hampton. So feel free to punt. Of all the kinds of pride, to me, intellectual pride is the worst. I think the Bible says something about knowledge puffs up. Oh my gosh! I mean. I, and I think it's pride. That's that's why he would want to be accepted in the wider field, right? His pride wants to yeah. be known as a scholar across the disciplines. And you're just going, well, you, your pride has made you a fool. You know, you you don't you apparently haven't really studied this subject, because if you did, you would not be an evolutionist. Um. Anyway, you know, pride is such an ugly thing and humility is so attractive. Imagine if that little simple truism works. Imagine the compelling nature of Jesus. I mean, the most humble person. He must have just been so attractive that way. Right. So anything more on that section, Hampton? The, you know, human genet you know, the history of the human genome showing that basically it came out of one person, Eve, right? The mother of all the living. And you can trace it down to a bottleneck and you can trace it through a dispersion event in the Middle East, just like the Tower of Babel. Right. No, and I don't, we, did, we didn't I don't read all those sections, but okay. Highlighted. Okay, guys, so I want to get to the next two because they're important. So the next two sections are, <clears throat> is one section about Neanderthals and one section about chimps. Okay. Uh, they're important to cover because you'll, you'll hear this, these two things in uh, evolution discussions all the time. So we want to get to the nitty gritty. So <clears throat> here's a section on page 72. The surprising Neanderthal. Now, I say Neanderthal. I hear some people these days saying Neanderthal. Oh, really? But, uh, but yeah, but I mean. Yeah, I use the T-H sound, not T sound. T-H-A-L. So if, if I'm wrong, forgive me, but I'm going to say it, Neanderthal. <clears throat> what do we do then with claims for non-human caveman ancestors? Everybody's heard that, right? right? Okay. New discoveries. <laughs> oh, there we are back to the black box, right? The box mm -hmm. has been opened. Now we have more data. New discoveries in archaeology and genetics have caused evolutionary views on Neanderthals, for example, to shift radically in the past decade. Neanderthals are now believed to have painted in caves, made musical instruments, and had controlled use of fire, buried their dead in a ceremonial manner with the head pointed towards the rising sun, and hunted the landscape for odd minerals in order to grind them up and use them for makeup, that is, cosmetics. Does that sound like some missing link? Or does that sound like a human being? It does. And I'm reminded <laughs> of, I don't know what 
chapter it was, but it talked about the descendants of Adam and these ones made musical instruments. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They built cities. Yeah. Yeah. So the details of this list are still debated among various evolutionists, but to even bringing up one of these ideas, let alone several at the same time, would have been tantamount to evolutionary heresy just a few years ago. Now they're starting to admit these things, right? So thanks to rapid advances in technology, we now have the ability to pull DNA from some of the best preserved Neanderthal bones. That, by the way, that's hard to do because DNA degrades quickly. So to pull it out of skeletons that are hundreds and thousands of years old, not millions, not ten thousands, but thousands even is that's difficult. Well, that kind of reminds me of the I think it was in Montana they found some bone marrow inside of a dinosaur bone and they were able to pull red blood cells out of it. Okay, let me and, put it. So they said, <laughs> well, up until now we thought red blood cells could only last like five or six thousand years old but now we know they can last 65 million years old okay so let me you know yeah let me put a little more flesh on that little rabbit no pun intended yeah (laughs) because that's really interesting and maybe uh, next time i'll get a lot of the raw data on that for us but let me at least refresh everybody's memory on what you're referring to so in 2005 in montana an archaeologist from North Carolina, female, was on a dig. They, they got a great spot for some uh, dinosaur bones. They found the best T-Rex they've ever found. And by best, I mean complete. You usually, like we were in the Smithsonian a week ago, Hampton, Kathy and I, uh, back in D.C. And uh, so, you, know, you went to the... the- dinosaur area right <laughs> i did <laughs> <laughs> but um <clears throat> so they, they'll have dinosaur skeletons well it just looks like there's the whole skeleton but often what has happened is they've recreated you know they've they've got some of the bones and then they recreate uh what they suspect the rest of the skeleton looked like and they're, they're usually quite accurate doing that but you're not really seeing the the real thing most of the time well in this case they found almost the complete t-rex skeleton those is very exciting there's a problem however her work uh her lab is in north carolina so they got to get those bones out of montana over to north carolina well you're going to helicopter them out of the mountains of Montana and then fly them to North Carolina. Well, the femur of a T-Rex is too big to fit in a helicopter. So they had to break it in half. So they did. They found soft tissue in there. (laughs) Well, here's the issue with that. That thing's not 70 million years old because soft tissue decomposes rapidly right in Mm -hmm. in decades not millions of years within decades that stuff decomposes so mr t-rex isn't 70 million years old 
And so this professor was saying that. And oh boy, did she catch the holy fire from the evolution. You can't be right. You know, you don't know what you're doing in your lab. And she didn't, you know, she'd publish in the journals and say, here's, here's what we found. And uh, of course they would land based or, you know, you didn't do your experiments right. But she would just invite them to the lab. Well, I've got it right here. You can come look at it too. I mean, it, it was preserved to the point where you could put your forceps in there and twang that, you know, the vessels, they'd snap back into place. So if you pushed every boundary that you could scientifically on dates, that thing at the most is 20,000 years old. But that's, that's if you pushed every, that's giving every benefit of the doubt. Right. So in reality, it's, it's not even 20,000 years old. That is a death blow for evolution. But right. we, we, we can look at that more, you know, in, in a future podcast. I'll go get all the journal articles if we want. But that's what happened. It's, it's very interesting. So talk about an Achilles heel. Now you got a T-Rex femur. That's a problem. Right. Okay, so here's where we were. Thanks to rapid advances in technology, we now have the ability to pull DNA from some of the best preserved Neanderthal bones. The field of ancient DNA genetics is problematic for DNA's fragile molecule that breaks down rapidly upon the death of an individual. Also, some of the damages are similar to those that occur over the course of time in living individuals. Thus, it's sometimes difficult to tell post-mortem DNA decay apart from mutations that occurred in the ancestry of that individual. So anyway, the rest of the paragraph elaborates the point. That's hard, you know, but they, it's very painstaking work to trace Neanderthal DNA because it decomposes so readily. But here's his conclusion. What have we learned? Would you be surprised if genetics has thrown evolutionists another curveball after careful consideration of the issues listed above modern studies on neanderthal genetics have come to some surprising conclusions so essentially here's the conclusion it's a human being a neanderthal is not some sasquatch you know that's a little more human than a normal sasquatch it's a human being mm -hmm. and in their genes have been traced, you know, throughout the flow, right. After the tower of Babel and stuff like that, his, his final sentence of that section from Spain to the middle of Russia, Neanderthals look more like one extended family, a human family that lived on the earth in Europe and Asia after the flood and were overwhelmed by a later migration of people. That's what the genetics is actually showing. It's not showing some missing link. It's showing that they're human. So when you hear that in evolution arguments, discount it. Just go, well, that's not true. Neanderthals were actually humans. They weren't beasts like, you know, semi-sasquatches. Right. So <clears throat> then the final section I think is really important, Hampton, and, and we'll read some of it. And then I want to bounce back to another page earlier in this book. 
if that's okay. Because okay. We, we often hear uh, this illustration brought up. This is the human versus chimp section. For several decades, we have been hearing humans and chimpanzees are 99% identical. Have you ever heard that? I'd heard 98%. Okay. Well, there, yeah, they're up to 99 now. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you hear that yeah. on the street, right? Here's his next short sentence. This is not true. Okay. And that, that's footnoted. This isn't this guy's opinion. And he refers down to the articles in, in um, genetic journals. It's not true. When you hear that, and he, he goes through and explains the articles and where they're fudging in order to make that statement. They're omitting a lot of data, just like, you know, about the, um, sorry for this 10 second rabbit trail, but all the, the stuff you're hearing about COVID, most of that data is omitted. You're not being told the real story with the vaccines or the virus. But anyway, that's what they did with the chimpanzee statement. In order to say it's, we're 99% identical, we are not. They're leaving out a lot of data. So <clears throat> the figure was based on some early experimental evidence that compared sections of known genes to each other. So at least some of our DNA is very similar, but our genomes are less than 2% protein coding. And many genes are not comparable between the two species. Humans have several hundred protein coding genes that are absent in chimps. There are entire gene families found in humans that are not in chimps. See what I'm saying? The more you get into the real data, you find out that that statement is absurd. We're, right. we're not 99% identical, not even close. So let me refer back to something. Well, you, you, know, left he, off, you left off the, the next sentence, which says this throws a monkey wrench into the evolutionary <laughs> model. <laughs> a good pun. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I should have emphasized the, the humor in it. That's right. But I wanted to go back to um, this was discussed earlier in the book, and I want to read this illustration to show how absurd that, that statement that we're 99% identical to chimps. So this is back on page 45. This is under this section. Uh, this is in natural selection. That chapter was the first chapter in the book and he, he gets into chimps. So imagine, I'm gonna read this paragraph and none of these statements could be true, but even if they were, it's impossible. So wait do you hear this. Imagine a population of 100,000 apes, the supposed progenitors of humans. Suppose that a male and a female both received a mutation so beneficial that they outsurvived everyone else. All the rest of the population died out, all 99,998 of them. And then the surviving pair had enough offspring to replenish the population in one generation. And this repeated every generation, 20, every 20 years for 10 million years. 
more than the supposed time since the last common ancestor of humans and chimps. This would mean that 500,000 beneficial mutations could be added to the population. Even with this completely unrealistic scenario, which maximizes evolutionary progress, only about 0.02% of the human genome could be generated. Considering that the difference between DNA of a human and a chimp, our supposed closest living relative, is at least 5% or 150 million bases, evolution has an obvious problem in explaining the origin of the genetic information in a creature such as a human. This is where the idea of junk DNA originated with evolutionist realization that natural selection could not create enough DNA. So the vast majority must be non-functional. And then, you know, you get into junk DNA and realize it's not junk, right? right. But right. even with that scenario, that's completely absurd. Two chimps are not gonna have 99,998 children. Right. <laughs> and that's not gonna happen for 10 million years in a row. Not, to mention, not to mention <laughs> all the uh, mutations that are not beneficial. Correct. It's, this is a completely hypothetical, no way thing. And you still couldn't create a human from a chimp. The most you could do, even under all those bizarre circumstances, 0.02%. And we're at least 5% different. But th that's not even communicative. When you say the difference between 0.02% and 5%, because that that's just the um, mechanical, that's just the material of the genes. Remember, they exist in 4D, right? So right. a 5% five, 5 difference doesn't mean chimps are 95% like humans. A 5% difference means there's a vast gulf. Right. You know, a universal gulf between the two. So anyway, this guy in this chapter goes through, you know, back to Carter's chapter on genetics. I'm just not going to read all the nitty gritty details, but he's just reemphasizing that point. Could, couldn't happen. Could not have happened. So let's finish out this chapter, Hampton, and that'll lead us to our next uh, podcast on the origin of life because remember evolution is a theory of origins it is trying to explain how we got here because they've eliminated god from the equation so that's what evolution's ultimately trying to do so we'll get into the origin of life in our next chapter but let's set it up with the end of this chapter <clears throat> the genome this is page 76 at the bottom, Hampton. The genome is a multidimensional operating system with built-in error correcting and self-modification codes. I mean, just pause there for just for a second. Really? Nature made that? Completely unintelligent forces designed a thing that's self-correcting and is the most complex thing in the universe? 
Right. But anyway, anyway, there are multiple overlapping DNA codes, RNA codes, and structural codes. There are DNA genes and RNA genes. The genome was designed with a large amount of redundancy on purpose. Despite the redundancy, it displays an amazing degree of compactness as greater than 20,000 genes combinatorially create greater than 100,000 distinct proteins. The genomes, the genome has also been slowly disintegrating over time, yet it's remained viable to date due to beautifully designed error-correcting codes and inbuilt, intelligently designed redundancy. That's not junk DNA. That's, you can create the product even if part of the uh, information system fails, you can still create a good product. Darwin is famously quoted as saying, it could be if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And his point is, well, the genome is one of those systems. Right. And it's, it's the most complex thing in the universe. How, how did that come about in a slow step-by-step -step fashion? So he says, I know this quote has been misused by both sides over the years, but still I claim the human genome is such a thing. I do not believe it could possibly have originated through naturalistic processes. I challenge the evolutionists to give us a workable scenario of genomic history, including the source of informational changes, an account of the amount of mutation necessary, and description of the selective forces necessary, all within the proper time frame. Indeed, I challenge them to come up with a way that the genome, any genome, first appeared, arising from scratch in a world otherwise devoid of instructional information. So <clears throat> I'll read the last paragraph in one second, but here's what you're going to hear in response to that challenge. Silence. Yeah. Okay, where, where does this lead? It should be plain by now that genetics is no friend of Darwin. His ignorance of the complexity of life, the means by which species reproduce, and the fragility of complicated systems allow him to theorize his way around insurmountable obstacles. Darwinism should be appraised in light of modern knowledge. Modern genetics supports the biblical account quite well. There's abundant evidence in the genes of modern man for the creation of two original people, Adam and Eve, a population bottleneck a few thousand years old later during Noah's flood and a subdivision of the population a few generations after that at Babel with the subsequent single dispersal of humanity across the globe. Not only that, but the rate of mutation, the distribution of mutations, and the fragility of the ultra-complex computer operating system called the human genome 
all testify to the youth of that system. One wonders if Darwin would have been able to come to the same conclusions if he were alive today. But it's not just the existence of genetics that's a threat to evolution. For the origin of life is no friend of evolutionary theory either. In the next chapter, we'll look into this. For all evolutionary origin of life scenarios defy known laws of chemistry, physics, and probability. Well, there you go. That's the end of that chapter. How are we doing on time? Well, it's about time to wrap it up. So, Well, rats, I love doing this. I wish we could just do it eight hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was very good. <clears throat> Thanks, Hampton. Okay, I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Oh, sure.